Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, new media and video editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, associate editor, and Dr. Micah Hill, interactive associate-in-chief. Hello and welcome to the July 2021 Fertility and Sterility on Air. For those keeping track at home, this is volume 116, number one. Unfortunately, our editor-in-chief, Kurt Barnhart, can't be here with us today, but happy to be joined as always with Eve. Eve, welcome. Good morning, Micah. Good morning, Eve. And in Kurt's place is the new Interactive Associate-in-Chief for Fertility and Sterility, Pietro Bortoletto. Pietro, thank you for joining us this morning. Hi, Micah. Hi, Eve. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Really excited to be here with you today. Happy to have you, Pietro. Welcome. And then I also just want to say welcome to Michael Simone. Many of you don't hear his voice on this podcast every month, but every month he is on with us and producing it with us. And so, Michael, thank you, as always, for joining us. We appreciate your hard work on putting this podcast together. So, Eve, what are you excited about for the July FNS edition? We've got lots of great articles to talk about today. I think the three highlights that I want our listeners to tune into are the biomarkers of ectopic pregnancies, 24-year outcomes of singleton pregnancies, and how thin is too thin, results looking at thin endometrial lining in the absence of cycle cancellation. Awesome. Well, let's get right to it. So we were supposed to start with an editorial from Kurt on the evolution of fertility and sterility. But since he can't be here with us today, we will save that for the August version because I know we all want to hear that. So I'm going to dive right into the views and reviews, which is brought to us this month by editorial editor Carlos Simon and talks about the future of the ART laboratory. He queried global experts on the future of the laboratory And the most common terms that they proposed that had to do with the future of the lab were processes, automation, data, and AI. And so in his introduction, he argues that AI and automation could simplify the IVF lab process, enhance outcomes, and reduce costs. So the five things that these experts, and there were over 20 of them that were included in this article, talk about or are we going to add more regulations and complexity to the lab, or will there be simplification with a lab-in-the-box concept? Secondly, will automation actually be implemented? Third, are the indicators traditionally used for IVF laboratories, individual laboratory staff, and individual pieces of equipment sufficient or even necessary for where the IVF lab is going in the future? Fourth, what parameters other than morphologic assessment should be implemented? And finally, what will the role of the embryologist and technician be in 2030 if we have AI and IVF lab uh, automation? So some of the authors answer each of these questions one at a time, and you should really read this. Other experts from a large European group break it down into simpler concepts such as increasing efficacy in the lab, efficiency in the lab, and safety in the lab. So finally, some American lab experts talk about whether the IVF lab will evolve or will it wither on the vine. All these experts seem to agree that change is coming to the ART lab, 
maybe an area that hasn't seen significant changes uh, over a long period of time, just minor improvements in techniques and laboratory conditions. I agree that this seems inevitable. The ART lab industry lags significantly behind other fields in implementing automation and AI into improving outcomes. But these changes aren't a panacea. They need to be studied rigorously. They need to be implemented safely. And quality needs to be managed in a way to ensure that these changes bring increased patient uh, outcomes, such as efficacy and efficiency, but also increased patient safety, all while driving lab costs down. So, Eve and Pietro, do you have any thoughts on uh, this views and reviews? Yeah, I think that automation is probably going to increase in the future. And I think with the advent of artificial intelligence and such technologies, we're going to be seeing uh, more and more automation on the horizon. I think if you talk to any embryologist in a busy lab, there are certain tasks that they would love to see automated, the kinds of things that take them away from really the technical, fun, and really challenging parts of being an embryologist. I think they would be all too happy to get rid of those and really focus on the the more interesting tasks in the lab. So I think they, they welcome automation. Yeah, and I agree with that. To that point, you know, certainly this is never going to be a technology that will replace the embryologist. This is really an embryologist enhancer, allowing them to, to be better and have more time to do what they do great. And as uh, practices continue to grow, I think there's a shortage of quality embryologists, and anything we can do to maximize their, their time in the lab is, is great. Speaking of AI and automation in the IVF lab, the next Fertility and Sterility Journal Club Global will come live to all of us on 26 August. We will be highlighting the first article from Fertility and Sterility's sister journals, uh, FNS Reviews, with Editor-in-Chief Ann Steiner and Media Editor Blake Evans talking about automation, IVF, and the uh, ART laboratory. So please join us for that. If you missed the recent FNS Journal Club Global on non-invasive PGTA, please log on to fertstert.org or fertstertdialog.com where you can see the replay of that journal club. So Eve, I think it's on to you next with this month's Fertile Battle. This next Fertile Battle is about COVID vaccination in women seeking pregnancy or an early pregnancy. What is there to debate? This issue's fertile battle debates what, for many clinicians, is a non-issue, i.e. COVID-19 vaccination in women seeking pregnancy or early in pregnancy. As a member of the ASRM COVID-19 task force, I was a little scared to read this, meaning are we actually going to have a debate about vaccines in a scientific journal? Rest assured, though, there are no anti-vaxxers or doubters of science among the authors of this debate. The authors of both the pro and con side are strong proponents of vaccination, but in the spirit of debate have focused their arguments on their assigned sides, and it was really excellent and quite informative. The purpose of the debate is to highlight the current state of knowledge and the risks of COVID-19 infection during pregnancy and risks and benefits of vaccination in the population of women that providers of infertility care most commonly see to allow for informed decision-making. The pro side was written by Meredith Snook and Richard Beji, who make the following points. Non-live attenuated vaccines are widely utilized and recommended in pregnancy. Maternal immunization through prenatal vaccination has improved maternal and neonatal health for numerous infectious conditions. 
While the overall risk of severe COVID-19 among pregnant women is relatively low to an individual patient, those who get infected and develop symptoms are at increased risk of more severe illness compared with their non-pregnant counterparts. Specifically, pregnant women with symptomatic COVID-19 demonstrate an increased risk of admission to an intensive care unit, increased need for mechanical ventilation, and increased risk of death compared with symptomatic non-pregnant individuals. An infection earlier in pregnancy may increase the risk for adverse fetal outcome. The authors also cite that emergency data from DART and VSAFE are also reassuring. VSAFE is an active safety monitoring and surveillance smartphone-based tool for post-vaccine follow-up. As of March 29, 2021, almost 70,000 VSAFE participants have indicated they were pregnant at the time they received COVID-19 vaccination, and close to 4,000 are enrolled in the VSAFE COVID-19 vaccine registry. There have not yet been any observed safety concerns for those pregnant people enrolled in VSAFE, and early data do not indicate any safety concerns with regard to pregnancy and neonatal outcomes. The authors conclude by saying that for pregnant patients, the risk of the unknown must be balanced against the very real risk of what is known. For patients undergoing infertility treatment, they should strongly consider vaccination as they may incur the risk of severe COVID-19 related illness and associated morbidity and mortality the longer they wait. The con side of this argument was written by Rick LeGrow and Catherine Pauls. Their argument hinges upon systemic exclusion of pregnant women from trials and the idea that we cannot make recommendations in the absence of rigorously collected data. They discuss the historical context of pregnant women as vulnerable subjects and the common rule. The common rule was first issued in 1981 is part of the Code of Federal Regulations. Up until 2018, pregnant women were described as vulnerable in the common rule. In 2018, this was revised, but listed 10 conditions that must be met in order for research to be initiated in pregnant women. The first condition is the largest hurdle, and that is preclinical studies, including studies on pregnant animals, and clinical studies, including studies on non-pregnant women, have been conducted and provide data for assessing potential risks to pregnant women and fetuses. So therefore, one cannot study pregnant women until after trials, including non-pregnant women, have been completed. Therefore, the authors argue that due to the exclusion of pregnant women from the initial COVID-19 vaccine studies, guidance for COVID-19 vaccination in patients who are pregnant is largely based on expert opinion rather than science. They caution that caution must be taken when administering COVID-19 vaccinations to pregnant patients in the absence of these safety data. The authors conclude with a call to action to revise the common rule by adding an 11th item to waive the above requirements in the face of an illness that is severe and life-threatening to patients who are pregnant. The systematic exclusion of patients who are pregnant or at risk for pregnancy from vaccine trials has resulted in unequal and inferior treatment, and we must advocate for equitable treatment of pregnant patients. Any thoughts on this? 
No, Eve, I think, you know, what I was going to ask you was, do you think we've actually done harm in the research community by labeling pregnant women as a, as a vulnerable population and, and trying to, per se, protect them when, in fact, we're actually excluding them from trials and therefore losing therapeutics that, that could be of benefit? And I, I think you answered that nicely in your summary. And I think the other point is that there there has historically been systematic exclusion of women from trials. And it's really only in 2016 that the NIH called for sex inclusion in clinical trials. And so I think that this is really part of a larger issue of sex exclusion. And pregnancy is a large part of that for sure. Mike, I'm going to turn it over to you to talk about perinatal outcomes in singleton pregnancies after IVF cycles over 24 years. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about this one. Great. Thank you, Eve. So in this month's seminal contribution to fertility and sterility, it's titled Perinatal Outcomes in Singleton Pregnancies After IVF Cycles Over 24 Years. It's from first author Shaw and colleagues from Harvard and Boston IVF and a global team and they wanted to study how changing clinical and laboratory practices impact singleton birth outcomes. So this was a retrospective cohort from one academic U.S. center covering 24 years of IVF and incredibly over 14,000 singleton IVF births. The authors adjusted for numerous variables that were likely to change over time, such as fresh versus frozen transfer, maternal age and BMI, and the number of embryos that were transferred. They reported a four gram decrease in baby birth weight over the 24 years, which was statistically significant with 14,000 cycles, but four grams probably not clinically relevant. They did report a 1.7 reduction in large for gestational age babies annually and a 3.2% reduction in preterm births annually over the last 24 years. I would just say that those are reductions in the annual odds risks or odds ratios, not the absolute risk. Finally, fresh embryos weighed 155 grams less than frozen embryos, and this persisted over time, and this is consistent with prior studies and uh, the bulk of the literature that shows that frozen embryos seem to have larger birth weights. In conclusion, the authors said that the study demonstrates a reduction in important markers of neonatal outcomes over time, primarily large for gestational age and preterm delivery. The commentary from Albugar in Egypt asks in the title, do we have evidence? While he doesn't provide the answer to that in this commentary, he notes the uniqueness of this study in providing a large sample size at a single university center over a large time frame. He notes that 32% of this study's frozen embryos were actually PGT tested, something that might affect the study outcome over time. Uh, and actually, if you think about it, the plausibility of the study's conclusion in either direction. I just have two quick comments. The first is on a confounder that this study actually can't account for. It's improvement in obstetric care over a 24-year time period. And you can find obstetric literature that shows a similar reduction in preterm delivery over the same time frame that seems to be independent of IVF. So is this actually showing that IVF lab outcomes over time are reducing preterm delivery? Or is this just showing that this is a reflection of the trend that we're seeing nat nationally with obstetric care? Uh, finally, I talked briefly with first author Shaw and senior Arthur Sakis, and they agree that this the most interesting finding is that frozen embryos 
had larger babies, and this was persistent over a 24-year time period. And I think that's a uniqueness to the study that confirms other studies, but show that perhaps this is not uh, changing over time as our technology changes, but is in fact either uh, innate to something with the freezing of embryos or maybe the actual protocols that we primarily use for our frozen embryo transfers. So in conclusion, this month's seminal contribution to the journal provides evidence of improved singleton gestation over time from a large uh, academic private practice. Micah, one quick question on that. The difference in gestational birth weight was 150 grams? That is correct, between fresh and frozen embryos over time. So whether, again, like the four gram difference over time that they saw, is 150 grams clinically relevant? I think most of us would say probably not. From a biologic uh, standpoint, I think it's interesting to maybe understand why that might be. But I don't think it's clinically relevant enough for us to be concerned about doing frozen embryo transfers in patients. Yeah, I agree. I just have a hard time getting excited about a 150-gram difference. Similar to other articles that we're talking about today, I think, you know, statistical findings need to be placed into clinical context. And so just having a significant p-value or odds ratio or relative risk doesn't necessarily mean that that translates into change in clinical practice or patient counseling. Yeah, I could not agree more. So Pietro, I think you are up next with the ASRM pages for the journal. So this July edition of FNS also has three really important committee opinions being published. And I know Michael likes to remind listeners, but these really are must-reads for practicing REs and trainees entering the field. The first is entitled Disposition of Unclaimed Embryos, an Ethics Committee Opinion, which replaces the 2013 document and updates the terminology from abandoned embryos to unclaimed embryos. If you speak with an embryology lab director today, they'll tell you that one of their increasing headaches is how to handle unclaimed embryos particularly when cryo-storage tank space is at a premium. You unfortunately also see some of these issues on the front page of the New York Times all too frequently. This committee opinion drives home the point that programs need to create and enforce written policies addressing the designation, retention, and disposal of unclaimed embryos. In the absence of such policies, they suggest classifying embryos as unclaimed if, one, a reasonable period of time has passed since contact with patient or couple has been made, two, Efforts outlined in the consent form have been made to contact the individuals, and they point out that you really should be documenting these carefully. And three, no written instructions exist regarding disposition of embryos. Fulfillment of these criteria allow IVF programs to make more active disposition decisions for unclaimed embryos. The committee also makes a point to underscore that unclaimed embryos cannot be used for research purposes or donated for reproductive use unless specific permission has been documented at the time of their creation. Micah, so the RAND Corporation estimates that there's nearly 400,000 embryos that have been frozen since the late 70s, and only 3% of patients have designated these frozen embryos as potentially useful for research. That's a lot of rich biologic material that's been cryopreserved. And I think with appropriate permission, there's an opportunity here for these materials to have a second life as a tool for be it training, research, lab QI. Micah, my question's for you. Whose job is it to have these conversations with patients, and where along the clinical relationship do you have them? All right. Uh, so Pietro's bringing the heat with his first article that he discusses. <laughs> I agree with you. I think, one, from a ethical standpoint, it's a huge issue. From a 
liability and maintenance standpoint of having these embryos in the lab. We all know that that's a, a big issue for programs and how do you end up expanding your space just to even physically be able to store them. But you're right, there is a lot of potential for these embryos. Whose job is that uh, is loaded? I think ASRM certainly, from my perspective, takes that question seriously and should be a, a leader and an advocate for that. But uh, my guess is we probably need legislation changes uh, in the country, at least in the United States, if we're going to move in a direction that allows us to use those embryos. Eve, what do you think? I, I almost had a heart attack when you said legislation. I thought you were talking about legislation about discarding embryos. And I was thinking I, I don't want any more legislation in the IVF laboratory. So I agree with you. The Dickey Wicker Amendment must be reversed. I also think that a lot of this really hinges upon an individual's belief on when does life begin. And I think it's a fascinating topic. Last week, our fellows and I had a really fascinating discussion about religion and ART and looking at the different religions from Judaism to Catholicism to Christianity to um, the Muslim faith and Buddhism, looking at those various beliefs. And I think that it plays into how people think about their embryos. Do they think about their embryos as potential to be life or do they think about their embryos as children. And I think our patients really view this from a wide spectrum. And so I think it is important. These are difficult conversations, but I think it is really important at that IVF consult for the physician doing the IVF consult to have a carefully crafted discussion about cryopreservation. And we've started doing more limited insemination in those couples who don't want to have surplus embryos remaining. And I think you have to balance the the individual's couple's religious and ethical beliefs against success rates in ART. And while I would love for everybody to have a freezer full of embryos, because we know that that's going to give them a high likelihood of success and probably the lowest cost from a single cycle, I think we have to take onus and have those conversations and tailor individuals' ART cycles to those individual beliefs. Yeah, those are all great points, Eve. I, you know, we have fellowship didactic debates, and I, I think I, you maybe gave me the idea for the next one. When does life begin? Because I don't know that we can completely answer that scientifically. So there's a lot of individual belief that, that comes into that, and it's important to understand from a patient perspective. And Micah, if you find out the answer, will you make sure to come back and share it with the listeners here on the FNS podcast? I'm yeah. sure they'd love to know. The second committee opinion in the July edition is entitled Evidence-Based Outcomes After Oocyte Cryopreservation for Donor Oocyte IVF and Planned Oocyte Cryopreservation. Eve, we've come a long way since that first live birth from a cryopreserved oocyte in 1987 in Australia that was reported in The Lancet. After moving from slow freezing to vitrification, oocyte cryopreservation has really become a reliable and highly effective option for women, to the point that in 2013, the ASRM removed the experimental label for oncofertility indications. It's worth noting to the listeners that they didn't go so far as to recommend oocyte cryopreservation for the purposes of circumventing reproductive aging, but that hasn't stopped it from being an increasingly common patient scenario that REC in their practice. For this publication, the ASRM Practice Committee conducted a systematic review of literature from 1986 to 2018 with a focus on vitrification era studies only. 
based on the quality of the available data, which they acknowledge is in general quite limited, they state that there's insufficient evidence to predict live birth rates following planned oocyte cryopreservation, which at the end of the day is what matters to patients. While you can't predict live birth, the committee opinion does state that ovarian reserve tests can be used to estimate the anticipated oocyte yield in women undergoing oocyte cryopreservation. The committee also affirms what we suspected, that live birth rates are improved when oocytes are frozen at younger ages, neonatal outcomes are not different between fresh and frozen oocytes, and there is no difference in pregnancy rates with fresh versus frozen donor oocytes. Eve, my question's for you. Every REI practice has, been, has seen a huge increase in planned oocyte cryopreservation in the last several years. What are you seeing in your practice volume-wise, and how are you counseling these patients who think that oocyte cryopreservation is a foolproof insurance policy to meet their future childbearing plans? Those are excellent questions. You bring up a really good point about, uh, quote, insurance policy, and I want to really harbor on this point. There's an ethics document that was published in 2018 called Planned Oocyte Cryopreservation for Women Seeking to Preserve Future Reproductive Potential, an Ethics Committee Opinion. In this article, the Ethics Committee really spells out the idea that um, we should not be talking about oocyte cryopreservation as fertility preservation, and we also should not be talking about oocyte cryopreservation as an insurance policy. I think it's really important that we use the right language and let patients know up front what are some of the benefits of the technology and what are some of the limitations of the technology. And I just want to read uh, one paragraph. The issue of false security is highlighted when planned oocyte cryopreservation is referred to as, quote, insurance policy for future childbearing raising a concern that women may rely too confidently on their preserved oocytes. It then goes on to say physicians and those acting in concert with them should avoid overstatements that may invite or allow misplaced confidence. And I think as we navigate the increasing volume of patients seeking planned oocyte cryopreservation, we need to be really deliberate and on the same page with the language that we are using. And finally, we end with a publication from the Ethics Committee entitled Disparities in Access to Effective Treatment for Infertility in the United States. The authors hold nothing back. Right from the start, they state clearly that formation of a family is a basic human right and point out that infertility is a recognized disease by the WHO and the AMA. Still, significant disparities exist in not only access to fertility treatments, but also treatment outcomes. At the time of the publication, the committee opinion points out that only nine states provided comprehensive coverage for infertility treatment to at least some residents via state law mandates. I'm proud to say that New York is one of them, and I know where Eve is in Illinois is another. But coverage doesn't always mean access. Several states impose significant restrictions. For example, Maryland, where MICA is, imposes a two-year waiting period, exempts religious employers, covers only married couples, and requires that only a husband's sperm be used for infertility treatment. Some states require 6 to 12 months of unprotected heterosexual intercourse, excluding same-sex couples and single individuals from mandated coverage. Despite its many shortcomings and significant gaps in access, states' mandated insurance as a whole, though, is good and increases utilization of infertility services and reduces financial pressures to transfer more than an embryo at a time. The committee opinion points out that 
insurance mandates reduce the moral hazard patients face when the financial incentive is no longer to maximize their pregnancy chance with each individual treatment cycle, which can have personal and long-term health consequences. While economic, while economic factors are the key driver in disparities in accessing effective treatment, there are significant individual and systematic discriminations that disadvantage people because of their race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Even in states with mandates, infertility care still utilized disproportionately by non-Hispanic white women of high socioeconomic and educational status. Micah, you work in an interesting setting where you provide infertility care for the men and women of the armed forces. How does the care you provide change when you're able to work within the confines of having access and coverage? Does coverage always translate to access for everyone in the military? I would say in general in our population, we see rates of care that are similar to the U.S. population. And so we've actually taken advantage of that uh, by publishing several studies that have looked at equal access to care in the military setting. Eve Feinberg may have done that when she was a fellow at the uh, NIH and Walter Reed herself. So, yeah, I, I do think we do see equal, fairly equal access. Uh, that being said, the military has historically been very conservative, and so with maybe other populations, such as LGBTQ, um, there have been some lag in that that I think has been changed in the recent years. But uh, I think you're exactly right, Pietro. Nationally, there's a huge variation and a huge disparity in access and treatment, and I think we recognize that there are a lot of variables to that, and we're probably lagging behind several other countries that do a much better job in ensuring equal access to care for our treatments for, so people can build a family. Eve, you're a fertility provider in a mandated state. What do you love and what do you hate about working in that environment? To your point earlier about just because people are in a mandated state doesn't necessarily mean that they have coverage. Illinois has a really generous mandate. However, only 50% of patients actually have jobs that follow that mandate. There are many exclusions to the mandate. What I love about it is for those patients that do have full coverage, things like single embryo transfer, cryopreservation, freeze-all, those are, those are included in their treatment cycle. They're not add-on costs that patients have to pay. And so I think it does take a little bit of the pressure off when having conversations about single embryo transfer that patients understand that if it's not successful, they can move forward with another transfer under their coverage. And so I think it incentivizes safe care. What I hate about it is the number of patients that don't have infertility coverage. And as many of you know, I started a not-for-profit now called the Chicago Coalition for Family Building that helps couples afford individuals and couples afford care. My goal is that that coalition won't need to exist in the future because everybody's going to have all of the care that they need to be able to afford having a child. We know that IVF success is cumulative and patients who <laughs> don't drop out of therapy, and we're going to talk about this in one of the later articles for today, Patients who don't drop out of therapy have higher cumulative success rates. And so I think anything and everything that we can do to keep patients undergoing care is in the best interest of the patient. Pietro, I really love your questions. I think you're bringing this to a new level. 
I'm going to pass it back to you to talk about your next paper on biomarkers of early pregnancy. Thanks, Eve. In the July edition, Len Sher et al. from Womack Army Medical Center in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, share with us an article entitled, An Intrauterine Genomic Classifier Reliably Delineates the Location of Non-Viable Pregnancies. This is a prospective cohort study of 27 hemodynamically stable women undergoing surgery for a clinically non-viable early pregnancy before 10 weeks gestation. All patients underwent uterine sampling via suction pipel prior to uterine evacuation or laparoscopy with the goal of comparing genome-wide transcriptomes of intrauterine samples from women with, who then have histologically confirmed abnormal IUPs versus ectopic pregnancy. The authors wanted to see if they could identify molecular differences that may be leveraged as a biomarker to aid early clinical decision-making. With the assistance of microarray and differential gene expression analysis, they identified 101 differentially expressed genes. 61 of which were upregulated in the endometrium of patients with ectopic pregnancies compared to those with abnormal IUPs. Interestingly, the five genes that were most differentially expressed in ectopic pregnancies were cilia-associated genes expressed in the ciliated epithelium of the fallopian tubes. I don't know about you, Mike and Eve, but I love it when there's some strong biologic plausibility and the pathophysiology of the findings just makes sense. The authors should be commended because they actually took the crucial step of answering the question we all want to know, so what? Is this useful for clinical decision-making? They found that the expression of these five genes performed very well at distinguishing non-viable pregnancies as being ectopic or abnormal IUPs within their cohort of 27 women. And they report an area under the ROC curve of 0.97, with a really nice tight 95% confidence interval of 91 to 100. And this is where you have to really commend them because they went even a step further and applied these five gene classifiers to an external data set from a study performed by Duncan et al. in the UK from 2011 that evaluated women with failed early pregnancy and found that their five genes continued to perform very well as a classifier of non-viable early pregnancies with an area under the curve of 0.84. The authors concluded that array-based global gene expression analysis of endometrial pipel samples from women with surgically confirmed ectopic or abnormal IUP are able to identify five ciliated associated genes that accurately identified pregnancy location, in not only their cohort of 27 women, but also an external validation cohort of 19 women. Eve, my first question is for you. Dr. Peter Takish of Eastern Virginia Medical School wrote an accompanying commentary for this article, where he points out that early identification and treatment of ectopic pregnancy is vital for future early pregnancy management and subsequent gestations. As an RE, how do you think that distinguishing non-viable pregnancies of unknown location as be it ectopic or abnormal IUP based on a biomarker changes your diagnostic evaluation and counseling for subsequent pregnancy attempts? I actually think that's the dream. I would love to be able to not only tell patients their beta HCG right off the bat, but have inside information as to whether or not a pregnancy is going to be viable. I think one of the most challenging things we face are abnormally rising betas and that prolonged period of time between positive beta and being able to make a definitive diagnosis. I think that's really stressful for patients. It sometimes leads to unnecessary methotrexate or unnecessary DNCs and unnecessary interventions. And so I think 
having early biomarkers would be fantastic. I know this is one of Kurt Barnhart's area of research, so I'm really sad he's not here today and something that he's passionate about discovering as well. Mike, a question for you. Identifying patients with recurrent early failed IUP versus recurrent ectopic pregnancy likely represents infertility of pretty different etiologies with a different workup and a different treatment, right? Pietro, that's a, a loaded question, but yes, I think they probably absolutely do represent different etiologies. I don't know that we're there yet to being able to tease that out, but I think if we have something that can be another tool in our armamentarium to try to diagnose a PUL uh, versus an ectopic versus a um, failed intrauterine gestation is certainly very helpful. And as an Army officer, I just want to give it a huge hua to Major Jess Lyncher for doing this as her thesis study. I think this was a pretty great thesis study, and Colonel Retired Rick Burney for guiding her through this. I think this is just an example of the incredible research that fellows can do uh, that actually have uh, significant translational capability to clinical medicine if the further studies bear this out. This next paper that I'm going to talk about, I, I alluded to earlier in the introduction. The paper is Dropout Rate and Cumulative Birth Outcomes in Couples Undergoing IVF Within a Funded and Actively Managed System of Care in New Zealand. The paper was written by Laura Miller with senior author John Peake from Fertility Associates New Zealand. The objective of this study was to determine the dropout rate between first and second IVF cycles in a controlled population derived from a publicly funded and actively managed care system in New Zealand, including the reason for dropout and associated cumulative live birth rates. This was a retrospective cohort study and examined couples who qualified for publicly funded IVF treatment, more on this later, under New Zealand's Clinical Priority Assessment Criteria, or CPAC. In the background section, the authors discuss how most couples require multiple cycles of IVF to have a higher chance of pregnancy because live birth per retrieval cycle is not optimal. Perseverance through IVF treatment is an important aspect of treatment success. It has been demonstrated that couples who continue with IVF, over 90% of them will have success. However, most studies find a cumulative chance of success to be lower because of patient dropout. It is important to understand a little bit about New Zealand's health system in order to put this study into context. First, only good prognosis patients have access to fully funded fertility care. Prognosis was calculated using a standardized assessment score factoring in age, ovarian reserve, prior children, and permanent sterilization. Fully funded care equals two complete IVF packages with each package consisting of a retrieval, fresh transfer where appropriate, and all subsequent FETs with embryos generated from that cycle. Cycles are actively managed with the use of treatment coordinators and unlimited free access to the care team. Structured timing of physician follow-up consultations were incorporated at the end of a treatment package or with cycle cancellation for poor response. Prognosis score was recalculated between treatment cycles, and those patients who no longer qualified were not able to move to a second IVF package. Wait time to start an IVF cycle was 12 months, and the average wait time after completion of one IVF cycle before the second was six months. Wow. 
There were 974 couples included in this study. The main finding was that in good prognosis population, in the main finding of the study was that in a good prognosis population, patient dropout rates were only 10.4%. Approximately 20% of couples who failed their first IVF package were not eligible to complete a second IVF package. There were 47 couples who were eligible for a second round, but who did not start treatment, and this population was the dropout group. These 47 couples were characterized into four groups, psychological reasons for dropout, medical reasons for dropout, other, and unknown. The cumulative live birth rate at the end of the first IVF package was 59% and was 72% by the end of all publicly funded IVF treatments. The take-home message from this study is that in a good prognosis population of patients who are actively managed, the cumulative likelihood of success is high and the dropout rates are low. There was an excellent reflection to this article written by Sophia Gamero from Cardiff University in the UK, who notes that the work done by Miller and colleagues supports the idea that it is beneficial to support young, good prognosis patients who have a strong desire to be biological parents through multiple cycles of treatment. She also notes that in the aftermath of a failed cycle, clinics could be proactive in reaching out to their patients, and this so-called active management of patients can ultimately yield higher cumulative success rates. I really liked this paper, and I really liked the framework that it proposes in terms of a more active management of patients. Pietro, we are moving into the assisted reproduction section of the journal where you have the first article associating IVF with offspring neoplasm. Thanks, Micah. Bal et al. from Soroka University Medical Center in Israel have a paper in the July edition entitled Possible Association Between In Vitro Fertilization Technologies and Offspring Neoplasm. This was a population-based retrospective cohort of singleton live births between 1995 and 2018 at a single medical center in Israel that sought to examine associations between benign and malignant neoplasms in IVF versus spontaneously conceived offspring. To do this, the authors matched IVF-conceived pregnancies in a one-to-four ratio to spontaneously conceived singletons based on month of birth and maternal age using a large regional database. In total, they identified 1,500 IVF singletons and matched them to 5,800 spontaneous singletons. As expected, there were a host of demographic differences between both groups, such as age, parity, rates of preterm birth, low birth weight, and gestational age at delivery. During their on average seven-year median follow-up period, they identified 46 neoplasms for a rate of 1.1% in the IVF group and 0.5% in the spontaneous conceptions group, for an odds ratio of 2.1% with a 95% confidence interval of 1.2 to 3.99. This difference was largely driven by more benign neoplasms in the IVF group, 0.9% versus malignant neoplasms, 0.2%, which were four times more common. There were no differences in odds of malignant neoplasms between both groups. These relationships remain significant after adjustment for all of the aforementioned patient-level variables that the groups differed on as well as when singletons with congenital anomalies were excluded from the analysis. Several studies have examined association between fertility treatment and malignancy with conflicting results. Among the studies in which an association has been found, specific cancer types, but particularly the hematologic malignancies, 
have been identified. Micah, you know how much ground needs to get covered in a new patient visit. Are these potential risks to ART-conceived offspring something that we need to be telling our patients about up front and in a more structured and rigorous way? That's a great question, Pietro. I, I think when we think about epidemiologic studies and when they find associations but have very large sample sizes and very low uh, absolute risks of any disease, we need to think about it from a practical standpoint and, and switching from just thinking about p-values and odds ratios to what's the actual harm or benefit to the patient that's sitting in front of us. And in this study, similar to things that we think about with imprinting disorders and ART, we're talking about a very low absolute risk. If you're talking to a single patient sitting in front of you, the chance that she actually has a baby and that that baby has a cancer is going to be well less than 1%. And the number of patients that you would need to treat with ART, if these findings are true, to actually harm is probably somewhere in the range of 1 in 200. And so I think it's fair to include that in your consenting process. We have some of this information in an educational video that we have our patients watch that takes a couple of hours. And it's certainly included in the SART consent forms that many clinics around the country use. But I have never had a patient not choose to reproduce or procreate or have a family because of a risk that to them themselves, actually having a child with this is incredibly low. So overall, while uh, the headline to this article may sound alarming, I actually find it reassuring because I think the risk to individual patients and individual offsprings is actually relatively low. This next paper talks about endometrial thickness. The title is Endometrial Thickness is Not Predictive for Live Birth After Embryo Transfer, Even Without a Cutoff. And this was written by Bahar Shakarian with senior author Baris Atah from Istanbul, Turkey. I thought this was an interesting study that helps to shed light on a very relevant issue, endometrial thickness. When we talk about IVF success or failure, I always think about the various factors that are in play in order to drive success. The egg or egg quality, the sperm or sperm quality, and the receptivity of the endometrium. Endometrial receptivity is a hot topic, and I think there are many ways to evaluate receptivity, such as on a macroscopic level, as to the appearance of the endometrium on ultrasound, on a microscopic level, evaluating for endometritis, on a genetic or genomic level, looking at gene expression, and newer emerging data on the microbiome. This study focuses on the ultrasound appearance of the endometrium. The objective of this study was to investigate the predicted value of endometrial thickness for live birth when a lower threshold of endometrial thickness is not employed for embryo transfer. This was a retrospective study and included all women who underwent fresh or frozen thawed embryo transfer between October 2016 and August 2019. Prior to pursuit of therapy, all women were required to have an HSG as well as a 3D transvaginal ultrasound. Uterine factors like fibroids or polyps were removed prior to commencing the start of an IVF stimulation cycle. Embryo transfer was planned regardless of endometrial thickness if the endometrium had a trilaminar appearance on trigger day for fresh cycle or progesterone start for frozen cycles. All fresh embryo transfers were performed at blastocyst stage and frozen transfers occurred on the morning of the sixth day of progesterone administration. The primary outcome of this study was live birth, defined as delivery of a living newborn after 24 weeks. 
the authors had a total of 560 embryo transfers, 273 fresh, and 287 FETs. They found that endometrial thickness was similar between women who achieved a live birth and women who did not achieve a live birth in both fresh and FET cycles. Furthermore, there was no linear association between endometrial thickness and live birth or miscarriage rates. Receiver operator analyses failed to show that endometrial thickness was predictive for live birth in both fresh and frozen cycles. There was an excellent reflections to this piece written by Natalie Stentz with senior author Kate Devine, who point out the limitations of the study in the low number of included transfers with thin endometriums. Only 18 of 560 transfers, or 3%, occurred in the setting of an endometrial thickness of less than 6 millimeters. These 18 transfers yielded a live birth rate of 33%, which was identical to the live birth rate for transfers in the overall cohort. They conclude by saying that the authors should be commended on their unique approach to assessing the association of endometrial thickness on live birth. But however, perhaps it is time to stop fixating on millimeters and instead shift our focus towards improved perinatal health with renewed emphasis on single embryo transfer and also an examination of which endometrial preparation protocols result in the healthiest ART pregnancies. And I couldn't agree with these sentiments more. So as always, this summarizes just a few articles that are in the journal. There are many other good ones. Just for example, there's an article out of Brazil that suggests that younger women uh, oocytes may actually have the ability to correct and adapt for sperm that has higher DNA fragmentation. There is another one from colleagues out of the University of Michigan that shows that hormonal contraception actively reduces AMH by 25%. And so if you're dosing or basing your protocol decision based upon AMH and women on contraception, hormonal contraception, you may want to read this article to consider your protocols. And there are video articles and numerous others that are fantastic. So Eve and Pietro, as always, it was wonderful to get together and talk about the journal. I hope all our readers take this and go to the actual paper journal or online journal itself and read articles that interest them. Eve and Micah, this was an absolute joy. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to being back um, as needed. Thanks so much, Pietro. It was really fun having you on, and keep those questions coming. Glad to have you, Pietro, as the new Interactive Associate-in-Chief, and I think you brought the heat on your first episode. We look forward to having you many more times in the future. Thanks so much, Micah, and please join us next month. Kurt will be back as our Editor-in-Chief. And we look forward to another great discussion about fertility and sterility. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.